I've done a, a lot of stupid things in my life, and I continue to do a lot of stupid things in my life, and I know I will do a lot more stupid things in my life. But there are certain things that I can look back on that are more stupid than other things. Um, I remember young teens, I was um, trying to irritate a friend of mine by taking two framing hammers and, and uh, pounding them together. Uh, just a, you know, that little impish spirit of me that just wants to irritate somebody. I just, you know, I was in this garage and I started banging them together. And he's like, dude, would you stop that? That's irritating. And it, it just incited me to do it harder and louder. And so I'm banging these hammers together. And um, I don't remember how long I was doing it, but at one point, this chip of hardened steel off the surface of the hammerhead um, went flying off with enough velocity that it actually embedded itself underneath the skin in my right hand. And I was like, oops, that's a little bit of a problem. Went home to my uh, parents, and they took me to the hospital, and sure enough, they took, a, took an x-ray of it, and there was this nice little spot right in my hand. But the doc said it was moving around too much, so unless I, he, I wanted him to cut my hand in multiple places to find it, it'd just have to stay there. So I had this reminder in my hand of a stupid mistake that I made, because every time I'd bump my hand, I'd feel that sliver of metal go into my bone. Sweet stuff. But I've thought about that particular stupid act and realized, you know, had the trajectory of that piece of steel been different, I could have lost an eye. Like this is just a stupid moment in my life, banging two hammers together. Hammers aren't made to, to pound one another. They're made for nails. I remember another time, another stupid thing that I did was uh, college. I couldn't afford to take my truck to a mechanic, so I had to kind of learn mechanics on my own. So I'd try and fix my truck, and usually uh, figure it out as I go, went. So this one particular time, I had to replace my universal joints on the driveline of my truck. And so I dropped it down, figured out how to do that, and I went and bought the universal joints and managed to put them in. And I, I'll tell you, I felt a tremendous sense of satisfaction, like I had arrived at manhood. I can be able to fix my truck. So I, so I bolted back up the driveline, and I thought, man, this is great. And I started it, and I started driving it, and the thing started to shake. Every time I'd go over 10, 15 miles an hour, it would shake violently, like one of those cheesy massage beds in a, you know, a, a hotel, so I it all the way down the road. And uh, so pretty much for the first, I don't know, a couple days after that, I, I'd drive my truck, but I'd go really slow because the thing would vibrate constantly. And at one point, I think it was Dan Overby, who is far more mechanically inclined than I am, you look under my truck, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, ah, you idiot, you put on the driveline backwards. And I thought, well, I didn't know there was like only one way it had to go, you know, but apparently drivelines are balanced and situated in such a way, at least for my truck, that there's only one way it works. If you switch it around, you get this massive vibration. And if I'd continued to drive like that, eventually that vibration probably would have backed off the little nuts holding on the driveline. And if it was in the front of the driveline, you're driving along and it goes down into a pothole, you end up like kind of uh, pole vaulting the back of your truck up in the air. I mean, it's not a good thing. Well, that's what happens when you don't know what you're doing. And that's what happens when you put something in a way that it wasn't designed to do. Hammers are not meant to hammer hammers. They're meant to drive nails into a board or something. And a driveline is not meant to be put on backwards. It only goes one way. Um, and a failure to understand that design will either cripple the efficiency or could end in, in tragedy. That is, you have to understand how, how something's made and why it's made and, and how it's supposed to go for it to work correctly. And that, 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 that's true in the church as well, is that for the church to really function, this, this organic body called the people of God, that's what the church is, it's not these walls. Um, for the church to operate effectively requires God's people to understand how God has masterfully designed it. And not just designed the corporate body, but 
designed the little pieces and parts within the body, namely the gifts, that's the context of this passage, how they operate and function with highly specialized purposes within this body. And a failure to understand that, a failure to understand how the body is designed, how God's created it, and the fact that drive lines don't go in reverse, um, will cripple it. It will cripple God's people. Apparently, God wanted us to understand the design of his body because he gives us a whole bunch of verses here that uh, spell out what it was designed to be, how it's designed to function. So that's our subject this morning um, that Paul gives to us and that we're going to be exploring, is how did God design the church so that we would understand it, not just understand it, but we would follow it and fulfill it so that the church would be everything God intended it to be and carry out its purpose. And uh, just so we're clear, the purpose of the church, you can put it in different ways, um, variations on the same theme, that the, the church exists as one body to, to, to magnify God and magnify what he's done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to know Christ and make him known. Or you can put it in this way, that the church exists to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or that the church exists, as our mission statement expresses, to spread a passion for the supremacy of Jesus. That's the purpose of the, of the one body. But it's important to understand how it was designed to carry out that purpose. So in the text that we have come to, in verses 12 and following, Paul is going to use an illustration that many of you are well aware of and you've heard, because it's it's very practical and it's perfectly suited to teaching us about the design that God has for the church, namely the illustration of, of a physical human body that is a singular whole, but has these diverse parts which have specialized function. He lays out for us in verse 12 the illustration that he's going to continue to use throughout the chapter. Here's the illustration, verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. There's this contrast throughout this first verse, this illustration, between the many and the one. That is, the body is one, but it has many parts. So there's this one and many. There's unity and there is diversity. So there is basically the analogy or the illustration that he gives right there in verse 12. Now, I don't want to belabor the point and insult your intelligence by, by explaining what is perfectly clear, um, except to say that he's using the image of a human body, which is clearly one, and yet a finger has a distinct and specialized function, an eye has a distinct and specialized function, that a toe has a distinct and specialized function, a liver has a distinct and specialized function, that each of the others do not share the same function. And that is the diversity in this illustration. So, again, I think it's pretty clear to most of us what that illustration is. But in the verses that follow now, 13 and following, what Paul is going to do is he's going to press this illustration home in two different directions. On the one hand, in verse 13, he's going to push in the direction and explain the unity of the church, what makes it one. That's verse 13. And then in verse 14, he's going to shift. He's going to push in a different direction, and he's going to explain to us and illustrate for us why diversity is necessary in the body. So he's taking this illustration of verse 12 and pressing it in two directions in verse 13 and then 14 and following. So the first direction he wants to push is and explain to us is the basis of our unity as a people of God. And I'm not talking about just the unity of this local body. It's a unity that's far broader than that. It's a unity that we share with other Christian churches throughout Fairfield, um, across our nation, uh, across the globe, and even over time. He is going to explain the basis of the unity of the entire church in verse 13. 
Now here is the basis of the unity of God's people. What makes it a singular body capable of working in harmony together? Verse 13, for, word for tells us he's now explaining uh, the illustration. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. There's, in this passage, only one thing capable of binding together into one entity people of diverse ethnic groups like Jews and Greeks, very different culturally, and also people of different social positions like slaves or free men. And that is the Spirit of God Himself. That is, the unity of the body finds its source in God Himself. On the basis of the cross, Paul tells us in chapter 10, that is, that is the basis of our unity, but then what organically connects us together is the Spirit of God. Now, he puts it in two different ways here. We were all baptized by or in, as some translations put it, one spirit, and we've all been made to drink of one spirit. Now, in light of the flow of the argument of chapter 12 and the emphasis on the whole body, this baptism in or by the spirit, I don't believe, is some kind of a post-conversion experience that some people talk about as if you come to Christ and then for a select few, they experience this thing called baptism in the, or by the Spirit. That, that wrecks the flow. It's Paul's talking about the nature of the whole church. So what's in view here when he talks about being baptized in or by one Spirit and drinking of the Spirit is really conversion. When the Spirit of God awakens us and, and, and makes us capable of trusting and loving and responding to His grace. That's what He does in us. He awakens us. It's called the new birth. That is what's in view, that we are all then born into one family, one organic community together. So it's the Spirit of God which binds the body together in such a way that it can work and function in harmony. So that's the basis of our, of our unity. Now, I believe that that's, in one sense, it sounds simple, but it's highly significant for a couple of reasons. First reason it's important. It tells us the nature or describes for us the true nature of unity in the church. And when Paul thinks of the unity of the church, he's not thinking in structural or organizational categories like denominations. But he sees that what binds God's people together is an authentic work of the Spirit of God that is God inhabiting his people. It's the Spirit that binds together and makes us family. And not just in a theoretical way, but in, a, in an experiential way. That there is a unity shared by the body of Christ, not just in this church, but also throughout the churches of Fairfield, in the nation, and across the globe. Now, you might ask the question, well, why, if there is this unity in the Spirit, is there so much division? That's a question that people constantly ask. Why so many denominations? Why is it that the Southern Baptist Church won't let us borrow their flags to do a mission conference? Why is there so much division? Well, in answer to that question, it's helpful for me, again, to think in how Paul's thinking. And make a distinction between what we might call the visible church, that organizational institution we call the church that you can see with your eyes, and the invisible church. The visible church is this right here. We're gathered together under this one roof. Um, you drove here. You got out of your car. Some of you were dressed nice. Some not as nice. And you all came in here. And we do our singing. And we do our preaching and praying. That is the visible church. And there is a visible church in Fairfield, all the other churches. It's, we can see it with the eye. 
Now, the visible church, Jesus tells us, is, has two basic parts to it. That is, there are those who are true believers, and in the visible church, there are also those who are not true believers. But Jesus would teach his disciples that there are, among the wheat, that is, those seeds that bear fruit, there is also the tares. So there will always be in the visible church both true believers and believers that think they are but are not. So there will always be a sense of division in the observable body of Christ. Moreover, Paul could say to the people of, of Ephesus, he could say, you know, you've got to watch out because they all look like sheep, but some of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. So within the visible church, there are those who are wolves that look like sheep but are really wolves. So there are, and we should expect there to be division in that visible church. But there is also this invisible church. That is, you can't necessarily see it with the naked eye. And it transcends culture and denominations. It slices through it all. It's the true church. And some of that true church is here. Some of that true church is over at the Christian Reformed Church, and some of the true church is over at the First Baptist Church. And that true church in which the Spirit of God really dwells, there is unity. It already has been established on the basis of the blood of Jesus and the fact that the Spirit of God organically connects us together. And maybe that explains why sometimes, not all the time, sometimes why you can be walking through a grocery store or walking through a park and you meet somebody that you know nothing about, and you instinctively know you're a part of the family, aren't you? And you come to find out, yeah, you're part of the I knew it. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it. There was something about you. But there is this unity that we really do share in the invisible church. And it's not primarily organizational or structural. It is spiritual. Another important, I think, implication of this is is if it is the Spirit that unites us, then it's the Spirit that will enable us to experience greater levels of that unity. I mean, we are so given to, t- to try and depend upon human methods to accomplish God's goals that oftentimes we try everything under the book, organizational unity, common meetings, um, structures, all of which are good, but they're peripheral. Deeper levels of experience unity within the body really come from one place, and that is the Spirit of God working in the hearts of people. It's a grace that unites us, and to which we look for, for greater levels of, of the unity with brother and brother and sister and sister. It's the Spirit of God who produces love and joy and peace, patience and kindness, all of which are necessary for the deeper levels of that experienced unity. All that to say that Paul sees the center of the unity of this body that makes it possible for it to work in harmony, not just this local body, but the global body. That the Spirit of God enables that whole global body and each of its little pieces to work in coordinated harmony together. It's the Spirit of God that makes that possible. Now, beginning in verse 14, that's, he's pushing in the direction, the analogy in the direction of there's oneness. We are one body in the Spirit. Now, beginning in verse 14, he's going to push in the opposite direction, and show the absolute necessity of diversity in the body, diversity of function. But before I look at that, let me just draw your attention to something. Paul spends one verse talking about the unity of the body and the spirit, verse 13, 
And then he's going to spend the rest of his time talking about the importance of diversity. Doesn't mean he's not concerned about unity. It means in this particular context, he is concerned about their diversity. He's arguing for it. Because apparently in this particular church, ancient church, and you can kind of pick up hints along the way through the letter, that they were operating in such a way that it was suffocating the diversity of gifting within the body and crippling God's design. So diversity is, Paul is going to argue, is God's design, so you need to protect it and need to free it. It needs to be what it's supposed to be. And anything that would that would dampen it, suffocate it, diminish the diversity of the body that's necessary is going to cripple it. So he spends the rest of the chapter arguing for the importance of diversity. Just goes to show you how important it is in his thinking. Having said that, here is verse 14 and following. I'm going to read through verse 22. Here is his emphasis on the importance and necessity of diversity. He says, Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? In other words, the function would be lost. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, There are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What emerges from this metaphor, this illustration, is the fact that God was brilliant and wise when he designed diversity into this thing we call the body of Christ or the church. I know some of us probably think, mistakenly of course, that the church was just kind of thrown together. It's haphazard, kind of a conglomeration of people from different pasts. And it operates in kind of an ad hoc fashion, like a bunch of three and four-year-olds out on the soccer field trying to play soccer. I know that's the image that comes to my mind because we watch our little son play soccer. He doesn't have a clue what position is. He's trying to learn what is a you know, fullback, halfback, or a forward, or what's a goalie. He doesn't have a sense of skill yet. He has an attention span of like five seconds. And you have this aimless mob of little guys running around trying to kick the ball or kick each other. And unfortunately, many of us think, ah, the church is a kind of a haphazard mob that kind of wanders aimlessly trying to do their worship and so forth with no sense of strategic design. But according to this, according to this, God has divinely, sovereignly, and wisely arranged the different pieces with specific, highly um, specialized function, without which the body doesn't function. And he makes the theological statement here in verse 18, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body. Every one of them, every individual gift, he's arranged. The parts of the body, every one of them, just as he willed or wanted them to be. So in Paul's view of the church, it's not this conglomeration, this haphazard mixture of people. 
No, God decided before the foundation of the universe that you will have this gift, you will have this gift, you will have this gift. And only as you operate it, according to that specialized function, will the body as a whole work. And again, the, 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 his il- illustration fits perfectly because my finger is not made to do what the liver is made to do. This was made with a highly specialized function of picking up things. My liver was made with a specialized function of filtering things. The liver was not made to be the finger, finger not the liver. They have highly specialized functions, and so it is in the body of Christ. And he made it that way. And some of those highly specialized gifts he lists down at the end of the chapter, where he writes, and these are just, again, a sampling. They could go on and on and on. And when he says, and in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles. They had a particular specialized function. And without the apostles, we would be, well, we wouldn't have a lot of the New Testament. Second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, specially gifted to do that, those with gifts of administration, in other words, able to organize things, carry things out, implement things, those speaking in different kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work with miracles, do all have a gift of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer, of course, is no, they weren't all made to do that. If you're a believer here, and the Spirit of God is in you, He has given you a unique gift with a highly specialized function to help the body of Christ, either locally or on a broader level. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Our service using our gifts is not merely in this building. In fact, we only meet here a couple hours a week which means probably a vast majority of ministry and use of gifts happens outside this church, and sometimes it might be to people that don't even go to this church. But those gifts have been divinely arranged and given with a great level of wisdom for the operation of the whole. And you kind of pan back for a moment using that illustration, and you realize, wow, so God made this one body bound together by the Spirit of God, which makes it possible to coordinate and harmonize things, which means each part is interdependent. And that is true. The idea of hand existing by itself just doesn't work. Earlier in the chapter, Paul has told us that to each person is given a manifestation of the Spirit, and only as it comes together do you have the full picture. So we were made to be dependent upon the other parts, like the human body. We depend on the apostles. There is a level of dependence upon prophets. There is a level of dependence upon those who help. A level of dependence upon teachers. That's the way he made it. And where there is little diversity or there's something that would suffocate it, then it cripples the body. That's why Paul spent so many verses here arguing for the necessity of diversified gifting in the body, working in harmony by the Spirit of God. Now, as I've worked through this section, three, if you want to call it, dysfunctions emerge that work to suffocate that diversity, Um, dysfunctions that continue to exist in the church. One of the dysfunctions or the maladies that often cripples the diversity of gifting in the body is what we might call the inferiority complex. I think that comes to light here in verse 15 where he says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Or in verse 16, And if the ear should say, 
Because I'm not an I, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. There is, I believe, an assumed scale of value that a foot doesn't consider itself as important as a hand or the ear and as important as the, as the eye. Most of us, if we had to choose which sense we were to lose between hearing and seeing, most of us, well, we wouldn't want to lose either one of them, but most of us would choose the loss of hearing over the loss of sight because we depend so much on seeing. Can't drive a car, can't see in a grocery store, can't see the money in your wallet. I mean, most of us would choose eyes over ears. And most of us, if we had a choice between legs and arms, we would probably choose our arms because we feed ourselves with the arms. You can paint with arms. You can do a computer. You can communicate with your hands. Um, you, can, you can hug your wife and touch things. Most of us would choose hands over feet. And that is the scale that's kind of in view. And so what Paul's saying is it's just because the foot isn't as observable, observably important as the hand or the ear as the eye, doesn't make you're not part of the body and shouldn't function. The idea being that sometimes, because we are fallen people and often given to comparison, that we can see what God has given to us and see something somebody else has and see, well, this isn't as important. So, And in that sense of inferiority in comparison, that you don't use it. And it cripples the body. And it fails to acknowledge the wisdom of God's design. He made you that way. He gifted you that way. And he gifted that other person that other way. And we really have no business comparing because you have your own distinct function. And you need to carry that out. That's how God arranged it. I know this, like I said, the sense of inferiority that oftentimes comes from comparison oftentimes does does, uh, cause people not to use their gift. And not just comparing one gift to another gift, but sometimes you have a spiritual gift and, and you see somebody with a stronger one than you have and it so easily can demotivate you from using it. And I'm in a period of my life right now, a season where I'm listening to a lot of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can get them to, at oneplace.com. Again, one of the best preachers I've ever heard. Um, died back in the 60s, um, British. I think I've mentioned him before. And, um, and, and it, he just feeds my soul so much as I'm listening to him on my headphones, download him on my little iPhone. And uh, I'm so thankful to God for his ministry of preaching and teaching. But a side effect that comes, not all the time, once in a while, when I hear this, this insightful, salient point that he makes, and I'm thinking, God, how do you get that kind of insight into the Scripture? Is it can discourage me? It's like, you know, sometimes, yeah, not all the time, you don't need to psychoanalyze me here. Sometimes I think, man, we had to just play that tape for the people at Parkway because it's so much more insightful than what I could get out of it. And there's a sense that you can, one can be discouraged from using their gift. Or you read the poetic theology of a Spurgeon or a Tozer and you're like, I can't write like that, so I might as well not write. It's like, no. God designed each of us with a specific function, purpose. He designed me to be here, you to be here, in this place, in this time, with a particular gift. And he's called you to use it. So when you know what that is, trust him with the design. That's how he's designed it. Go with it and enjoy it. That's what God created you to be in the body and do it. Do it with all of your heart and learn how to do it better as you go along. That's one of the dysfunctions that oftentimes suffocates that diversity is that inferiority complex, the 
foot saying to the hand, well, I'm not a hand, so I don't, it's not belong. Another complex or dysfunction has to do with what we might call conformity or uniformity, the pressure to make everybody the same part. Um, and there we see, or we see this kind of come to light when Paul says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye. Now there's a, a great function, a specialized function, the faculty of sight. But if everybody's an eye, or everybody's an eye then, then where is that function of hearing? And, and if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts and so forth, so on. That is, it, it seems that in this ancient church of Corinth, certain gifts were so elevated and so sought after that if some were feeling inferior, others were chasing after those. So everybody, and it seems that they were probably tongues and prophecy, the prophetic gift, that everybody, others were clamoring to those and leaving neglected their own specific functioning gifts. And that is, by the way, one of the dangers of overemphasizing any one gift to the exclusion of the others that people feel like, well, if I'm really going to be a part of the body, I have to be that. In charismatic circles, that might be speaking in tongues or, or the gift of prophecy. Oh, that's the good one, so everybody wants to be it, in which the other functions are left behind. Or in more word-based, word-centered churches that are concerned about precision and biblical interpretation and precision in doctrinal formulation and theology. It may be the gift of preaching and teaching that's held up. And so that's the one that kind of, by nature of the pressure surrounding the greatness of that gift, others want to become like, leaving aside what they have been given. And that doesn't work either. There needs to be that grabbing hold of the importance and necessity of there being apostles and, and all the different gifts in the body functioning as the Spirit has designed us. I mean, everything in our human experience, in the man-made world and the created world, tells us that every complex organism has to have these little parts that have distinctive specialized functions. Your favorite football team would fall flat on its face if everybody was a lineman. And there was no quarterback to throw the ball and there was no receiver to catch the ball. doesn't work. Where would the orchestra be? If everybody wanted to be a percussionist, you'd have lots of banging, you'd have lots of rhythm, but no melody and no harmony. The military would fall apart if everybody wanted to be a machine gunner. Well, this is cool. Everybody wants to be a machine gunner. Then you run out of ammunition because you don't have a supply guy. You don't have ammunition because you don't have a supply guy. You don't have food. You don't have MREs. You don't have a radio man. You can't call in backup, airstrikes, and artillery support. Every complex organism has these specialized, has to have these specialized functions. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Creation is no different from the microorganisms to the big organisms. If we had a world full of oak trees, and that's all we had, the oak trees would die because they are dependent on these little things called bacteria to break down organic material so that it can actually feed itself. The whole universe is constructed that way, and it's the same basic construction that God used in the body of Christ, in the church, this organic community filled with the Spirit, this invisible church. That's how He made it. He made you to be part of it. Me to be a part of it. You can't have this, allow the dysfunction of elevating one gift so that everybody wants to be the same thing, this uh, conformity complex. And then there's one other one that tends to really suffocate. This is the last dysfunction 
Um, and that is the opposite of the first one. If some gifts aren't used because people feel a sense of inferiority, and by the way, the gift isn't about you anyway, it isn't. It's about helping others to the glory of God. It's, it's not about you. But the third one is, is what you might call the dysfunction of superiority. This is brought out in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, again, there's this uh, assumed level of value. The eye, which is deemed more important than the hand, cannot say, I don't have need of you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't have need of you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, that seem to be weaker, are indispensable. I kind of, word kind of struck me as I was studying. It's indispensable. In other words, it's a necessity. The parts that we deem to be, quote unquote, weaker, less influential, less respectable, are in fact indispensable. Remarkable how many times the word need is used. The I can't say, I don't need you to the foot or to the hand. No, the point is, you do need it. There is a mutual need for one another, and even the parts you don't consider as respectable or influential are indispensable to the, to the efficient working of the whole. It's really easy, given our fallenness and our tendency to evaluate people and say, well, this person's more valuable than this one, to easily think in our minds, we probably never articulate it because we'd be embarrassed by the pride implicit in it. But we would oftentimes think, well, you know, this person doesn't bring that much to the table. He's not very healthy, and his gift is, he likes helping people. He, he, he goes from um, elderly home to elderly home changing lights. You know, we've got some big issues, so if, 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 if he needs to leave, that's fine. No big deal. Then Paul is basically saying, nah, wait a second. Even the parts that you deem to be less influential are indispensable. Indispensable. And back to the analogy. My thumb may not be as important as my eye. But I don't want to lose it. And the same attitude has to be shared amongst all the different gifting, regardless of where they are in the seeming value of things. Indispensable. No, I'm sorry, the guy who changes lights, he's indispensable to this body. He shows a facet of God's love and mercy that others don't show. It's necessary. And to reinforce it, Paul tells us, and this is another theological statement he makes in the middle of verse 28. He says, God has appointed first, oh, excuse me, not 28, it's in verse 24, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts elect. Greater honor. In other words, the, 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 the less influential or less respectable gifts in operation in the body, God actually considers and, and regards with greater honor. Now, I don't know if that's because God is inclined to show greater grace to things that demonstrate greater humility. I mean, that is how God works through the Scriptures. That may be it. Bottom line is, is that the gifts that oftentimes people think is less important are the ones that God Himself honors more highly. And if 
we really care about what God thinks, then when you see somebody with a gift that you might not think is as influential as yours or somebody else's, to recognize that God honors that one. If He honors that one, then so should I. So that we would have this mutual care and concern for one another and that we would each operate according to that specialized function that God has given to each of us for the benefit of the whole. You see, here, here is God's design for the church in a nutshell. It's a philosophy of how God organizes the church all wrapped up into a person's body. What makes a harmonized, unified body church organism possible is that God indwells her. And what makes the body function is God using the diverse, specialized functions of each part that He arranged, not you, for them to function as God has designed them to function. And when the Spirit fills the church in that way, unites the church in that way, and each person understanding and knowing their gift exercises them faithfully, with humility, consistently, and in faith, and the body of Christ is strengthened. So there, in short, is the teaching on the design of the church and how important each diverse part is. But I'll tell you, you know, the question that really plagues me that this teaching does not address, at least not until the next chapter. Okay, Dan, I, I, I get it. Fairly clear, fairly logical. What you're saying is that I have to use my gift in specialized function for the body to work. That's important. And I have to revere and be concerned and care about other people doing their job, which is going to be different than mine. That's what you're saying. That's what Paul's saying. That's what God's saying. Yes, it's his design. So why then? Here's the, here's the haunting question. So why is it that we don't see this kind of harmonized, strong, healthy, vibrant church in our contemporary culture why is it that the church looks more like a guy with one one eye half a lung couple toes couple couple i don't know fingers and a tooth why is it that's what the contemporary church looks like because it's so weak it can't make any sustainable and monumental impact on the culture unlike first century and other times in our church history why is it that, that we have a quadriplegic church? Why is it that we're actually able to say with some degree of accuracy, well, you know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work? I mean, that's not how God designed it, so what's misfiring? Why is it that the church is on the operating table on ICU? I mean, that's a big question for me. And what is it going to take to take out those defibrillators and bring her back to life? So the people actually, they don't just know I'm supposed to use your gift. They are passionate about using that gift for the overall benefit of the body to the glory of God. Why is it? Why are we in such a state? And I'm speaking of the primarily American church. So I don't think it's like that in China. Let me venture a couple answers. One. It's possible that the church is filled with non-Christian Christians. There's people who think they believe, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot of tares amongst the wheat. It could be that the church is just filled with people who aren't real believers, and therefore they don't have the Spirit of God. They have no compulsion to use their gift 
sacrificially for other people. That may be true. The church may be filled with unbelieving believers. One possibility. I'm willing to accept that. Only God knows. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that people just don't, they don't understand their gift. The problem is one of understanding. And it, that may be true. I'm sure there are people in, in our congregation who are newer to the faith. This whole idea of the spirit of the living God, the omnipotent one, coming in and giving me a specialized gift of teaching or whatever to function in the body may be somewhat new to you, and you don't know what it is. And that, that's a good place to be, provided you want to learn what it is. And I don't think, this is maybe just my simpleton thinking, I don't think it's rocket science to figure out how God's created you, and what he's gifted you to be. I mean, you can start with who you are and what you're good at, Many of us have some kind of sense of what we're good at. Some of us are way off. Just watch American Idol. Some people are way off. <laughs> that was not in my notes. That was a little bit of a sign. <laughs> in any respect, start with, uh, you know, your strengths and, and so forth. Another thing is that, uh, you know, you pray. If you're earnest about, God, I want to serve you. And I want to serve your body in the unique way you've gifted me. And you pray about it. And if you're praying earnestly, I fully believe that God will answer your prayers and he will lead you and guide you into the place you're supposed to be. I also believe that there needs to be an inquiry made from other Christian people who know you well enough and they can tell you what no survey will ever tell you. They'll be able to point you in the right direction and say, I, you know, I see this in your life. I've seen you do this in my life and it's pretty amazing when you do it. I've seen the Lord bear fruit in it. And that may give you some guidance. That's what the community is there for is to help us form and understand who we are at the church. So ask people. I'm, I'm basically a pastor because some guy after a devotion that I did came up and said, you know, you ought to consider ministry. It was a simple conversation, a simple sentence that launched me in a direction to discover a little bit of who I am. And keep in mind, this is a bit of a side note, that discovering your gift is less of an event and more of a journey. I'm still discovering who God made me to be in his, in his kingdom. And he will continue to show you. So, you know, inquire. So, you know, start with where you're at. Pray, inquire, and then, and then try stuff out. You know, experiment and figure out where God is bearing fruit in your life. And, and, uh, and that process, I believe, will quite simply begin to show you how you've been uniquely gifted to play a specialized function in the body of Christ. But you know what? That's the easy part in my thinking. Discovering God's spirit gift with a specialized purpose is the easy part. The hard part is using it faithfully, sacrificially, and consistently. It's one thing to discover, I have the gift of wisdom. And then to have someone call you repeatedly late at night just had his wife leave him for another man, needing your wisdom. And all of a sudden, this really cute gift you thought you had has work attached to it. Then all of a sudden, you're, you're up late, and you're dealing with people's garbage. I mean, even in the analogy, your liver is working hard. Your eyes are blinking and trying to keep the crud out constantly working and getting out the bad stuff and in with the good stuff. They are working constantly. There is this little four-letter word called work and sacrifice that is attached to the use of your gift, which most people are highly allergic to. 
which is why many choose not to use their gift. They'd use it if it was easy and convenient. But when it's hard, and when you're like Paul, in tears because your gift is costing you emotionally, well, then it's a different story. I don't want to paint a total dreary picture. You know the fact that matters, even when you're, if you're dependent on the Spirit and you're on your knees saying, Lord, I don't have any more fuel to help this guy who's calling me. But I know you do, and I know he needs my gift right now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And then when there is that use of your gift, even in those times, it's a little bit amazing to experience the joy of God using you. It must be like Tiger Woods actually hitting the golf ball, what he was designed to do. So there is joy in it, but it is the allergic reaction to work and pain and suffering and bearing the cross that's the hard part. Discovering your gift is probably the easier part. It's working with the gift in dependence upon the Spirit that's the more difficult part. That's the second reason. And here's the last, and what I think is the root And let's just, let me just tell you, this is completely humbling to say and troubling. Let's say that twice. I think at the root of why the contemporary church has one eye, a couple fingers, half a lung, and a couple toes. And by the way, if you happen to be one or two of those toes or the tooth or the eye, you keep going for the joy of the Lord and knowing that one day, God will look upon you and he'll say, well done. You do it regardless of what the rest of the body's doing. And you just keep moving. And don't feel disgruntled and complaining about the fact that that guy's not being the hand he should be and this person's not being the foot they should be. You just keep moving. And don't compare yourself. But I think at the root of why people don't utilize their specific gift function is that there is a famine of love in the church. by accident that right after this amazing talk about design, the very last statement of the chapter, he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What compels people to actually work and sacrifice using their gift is this central motivation borne by the Spirit of God we call love, the chief fruit of God's divine presence in His church, which is patient, kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't fail. In other words, it's always faithful. perseveres all things. Where the Spirit of God is present, and flowing, their love will be the motivation. And where love is the motivation, you can't stop people from using their gift. Because they have to serve a brother or sister. They have to bring the manifestation of the Spirit they've been given for the sake of the body. I'd be willing to argue that at the, 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 at the center of the disease that causes the quadriplegia to happen in our, our time, is there's a famine of love and there's a famine of love because there's a drought of God's Spirit. And you know what? And this is the haunting part. That is not a superficial flaw. It's a fundamental and a fatal flaw. 
church loses its love. And God said to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, you've lost your love. And unless there's deep-seated repentance and return to the former way of doing things, I am going to snuff out your candelabra. The loss of love is what is central. It means the disease runs deep. So if that diagnosis is correct, that ultimately at the root of why the church is the way it is, is that it lacks love because it lacks the fullness of the Spirit, then we know where we need to be praying and how we need to be praying. We don't need to be praying that we well, want people to use their gifts more. That's not the source. That's not the real root problem. The real issue is, God, your people need your spirit and they need to learn to love again, which is something only you can do. I mean, we, we have to do the work of self-analysis. Each one here has a specific function. Ask yourself the question, do I know what my gift is? If the answer is yes, then you have to ask yourself, am I using it faithfully, sacrificially in the service to the body? Because that's what love does. And if you're not, you have to ask the question, why? And could it be that you'll discover that I'm just not a loving person and there's the Spirit of God is anemically filling my life. And in that discovery, you'll start to cry out in faith and say, Lord, I'm not the Christian I thought I was. And the disease goes far deeper than, than just not using my gift. It's that I am fundamentally breaking the cardinal law of the Scripture to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your brother and your neighbor. It's a big problem. But I want to give you a, a word of hope in that, and that is, you know, this whole message could leave you in a state of guilt that sends you to the place where it's like, oh, I've got to do this, which is not where I want you to go. I'd rather have us recognize that, wow, you know, the church in general, and perhaps you as an individual specifically, I am in need of so much deep-seated healing in my life. I need the Spirit of God to come in and reignite and reawaken the love that I know I'm supposed to have and that by God's grace I will begin to see and care about other people and out of that care and love I will start to serve other people because I trust that God is gracious and merciful. If there is failure in this body right here and you're sensing, I'm, I'm raise my hand, I'm a failure, then I'd have you run to the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God and cry out to Him. I say, Lord God of heaven, revive within me what is central and what is lacking, namely a love for your people. And out of that love, I will begin to use and be what you have created me to be. So I leave this, I guess, in kind of your court, because it requires the individual examination. Ask yourself, do I know what my gift is? If you do, are you using it? If you're not using it, ask the question. Do I lack what is fundamental, namely love? And if that's the case, let's joyfully and consistently repent and watch for God's grace to revive. So we spent a couple of moments asking, Spirit, what are you saying to me individually? 